good morning, everybody. How are we doing? As Harvey mentioned, we're looking at Galatians together. And this past week, our small groups were looking at chapter 2. And there is a whole lot in this chapter. Um, so what I'll encourage you to do is if you have a Bible with you or you're going to use your phone, let's open up together to Galatians 2. And I'll have you just keep that open throughout the message because I'm going to refer to a lot of things. But the text will not be up here after we read through it, okay? So here we go. Galatians 2. I'll give you a second. Sorry, I'm rushing you. All right. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task to preach the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned for before certain, men, uh, before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? 
absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroy, then I, I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would be speaking to us today, that we would be encouraged to grab hold of the freedom that the gospel presents to us, a freedom to live full and to overpour into the lives of others blessings. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. There's a lot in this text, but the first question I want to ask you, and I want this to sit on your minds as we walk through this text, is this. What is your value? Okay? What is your value? Some of us may know the right answer to this question, but I'm not looking for the right answer to this question. I'm looking for you to take a moment, close your eyes. Do this with me. Practice this with me. Take a moment. Close your eyes. Look deep inside you and ask yourself, what is my value? Maybe thoughts of gifts that you have. God's gifted you maybe as a musician or an athlete, a teacher. Maybe there's something that you feel provides you with value. Now what I want you to do is take it away, okay? This thing. Maybe you've locked onto something that you feel brings value. I want you to imagine if that was gone. What is your value? You can open your eyes. Hopefully something's sitting with you, and we're going to walk through this text together with this concept of value in mind, because I think this is a point that Paul is trying to make in this text, and I'll show you how. Last week, I talked about uh, these first two chapters, and I said we have these Judaizers, the, the Jewish Christians coming to, the, to the, the Gentiles in Galatia, and they're trying to add to the gospel that Paul had brought them. They're saying, okay, yes, you need Jesus, but you also need to obey the Mosaic laws in order to be saved, okay? And Paul is upset by this, furious. We're going to look into why he's upset a little bit more today, but we know he's upset. He doesn't like this at all. He says anything that isn't just the gospel of salvation in Christ Jesus through his Sacrifice is not the go a gospel at all, okay? So we walked through that. And I said, in these first two chapters, Paul's reintroducing himself to the, to the Galatians. He's explaining to them, because the, the teachers, the Judaizers that had come, had tried to convince them that 
he was a false apostle, that the doctrine he was teaching was not complete, and so they didn't need to listen to what he had to say. And so Paul now in chapter 1 and 2 is saying, well, let me show you why I have the authority I have. And we saw last week that he established his authority in chapter 1, that he has an apostle, that he was not sent by man, but by God himself through revelation received directly through the resurrected and glorified Christ. Using his radical transformation from Pharisee to freedom as evidence to the miraculous work of Jesus in his life. And the fact that Jesus was using him, speaking to him directly with the message of the gospel to be brought to the Gentiles. And here in chapter 2, I would say he is once again establishing the authority that he has an apostle. But this time, he's establishing that authority by showing the unity that God established in God's church through Paul with the other apostles on the basis of one gospel. Okay? You with me? So he's showing us in chapter 2 that God worked through Paul and with the other apostles to establish unity And in this unity had affirmed one gospel. What is the gospel? What is the heart of the gospel? We get to see that also in this text. I believe Paul, in his correction to Peter, provides a picture of what this is, the heart of the gospel in verse 15 and 16. He says, We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And to be justified, what we mean is to be right with God. Okay? To be justified, we mean is to be right with God. Now, this may feel, and certainly culturally does feel, counterintuitive. Because often we look for laws or rules which we need to keep up or maintain in order to be in right standing, right? And with God, we can do the same, the very same thing. But that's not the case. That's not the case. And you might be asking, well, Aaron, we studied James last year and we talked a lot about works and the importance of works. Are you saying that we don't need to obey God? I'm not saying that at all. And neither is Paul. In fact, neither does Jesus. We look at the gospel requires obedience. Think about when Jesus heals, right? He goes and he heals somebody. What's he say after he heals them? Go and sin no more, yeah? That's an encouragement to obey, right? When the Great Commission is given, Jesus says, teach them how to obey every command I've given. So obedience is important to the gospel. So what's Paul's issue here? What's his issue here? I believe that the issue is an issue of order, okay? The issue is an issue of order, okay? Watch this. Jewish teachers, they're saying this, okay? Walk with me. Accept Jesus 
obey the law, be saved. Okay? That's what the teachers are saying. Paul is saying, accept Jesus, be saved, obey his commands. Okay? You see the difference? It may seem that those things have some similarity and that the three items are the same, but the order matters. And so I will remind you, I'm going to ask you again, come back to that beginning. Where is your value? Okay? Where is your value? Think about that. You'll see where we're going here. Just a second. It's good stuff. Okay, so two questions, additional questions. I know I'm throwing a lot of questions at you today. They're good questions. Do you obey God to be accepted? Okay, or do you obey God because you are accepted? Okay, see how that feels a bit different? One of these forms of obedience is an outpouring of a life lived in freedom, paid for at an incredible price. The other is bondage in order to obtain something already purchased. Right? You with me? Bondage in order to obtain something already paid for. Christ, and if you're in the second category, obedience in order to be accepted, this chapter ends saying, if that were the case, verse 21, Christ died for nothing. Nothing. Both of these pursuits and directions provide fruit in our lives. We think of fruit as bad, as good, I can tell you, fruit can also be rotten, okay? So in this first line, when we are obeying in order to be accepted, the fruit of that is anxiety and selfishness, okay? Why? Anxiety, because you never are quite sure if it's enough. Selfishness, because the things you are doing are for you and not for God. See that? If you spin the order, Jesus died, I am saved, and so I obey. That obedience creates fruit as well. Out of this incredible appreciation of recognizing a gift received, The fruit is joy. The fruit is love. The fruit is a a pursuit of likeness. Right? Because if you recognize the incredible nature of a salvation fully received, then that is a joyful gift. And you want to celebrate that with joy. And if you are celebrating the incredible gift, you want to love the one giving the gift, right? Has anyone ever given you a neat gift and you're like, man, I did nothing to deserve that. It's not my birthday. 
and I hardly know this person. Has that ever happened? It's happened to me. What does that inspire in you? For me, and hopefully for you, you're like, wow, what an amazing undeserved gift. I want to give back, right? I want to give back. may not be the same type of gift, but you just are like, I want to give back. The gift that you received from the person who you didn't really know and didn't give you the gift on your birthday gave you such a minor gift compared to the gift that you have received in Christ Jesus. But so many of us walk through life without fully understanding or recognizing the nature of the gift received. So we continue to walk trying to appease a God who has accepted us. You know what I'm saying? I'm not saying walking out in obedience isn't a good thing. I'm saying, why are you doing it? What is the order? Are you trying to earn something that's impossible to earn and has already been purchased? What is the order? And if the order is wrong, the operating is wrong. If you know me and you've been here a little while, you know I like to talk a lot about listening and the value of listening to people and how our perspectives can be vastly grown by listening to others, right? I, I like to say, I don't take myself very seriously, but I take God incredibly seriously, okay? If the order is wrong, then you feel like you need to be right. Why is that? Because if you're right, it's adding value, right? I'm getting value. If I'm wrong, I'm losing value. You with me? I got to be right. Because if I'm right, I'm adding value. If I'm wrong, I'm losing value. The issue is value. This is a wrestling for so many people. This isn't a new thing. I would like to say, but I may be wrong, so forgive me, that I think that almost all people in some capacity or another are on a pursuit of value. I think so. And I think that when that value is being approached in a poor order, we can't get it. We can't feel the value. And so we feel empty. A long, long time ago, there was a guy, Martin Luther. Maybe some of you know him or know of him. He was a great teacher. I mean, so hopefully, hopefully some of you don't know him. Oh, geez. Great teacher, incredible intellect, very smart, studying the word, deep in the word. Well, Martin Luther wrestled with the concept of the righteousness of God for many Years, many, 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 many years while teaching and learning. He bumped into this concept in Romans 1 and goes, I can't wrap my head around it, and I just feel like I, it's this unattainable object, the righteousness of God. He finally comes to a realization that nothing could do he could do would make him righteous. Rather, the righteousness of God he so desired 
was a gift he had been reluctant to receive. The order matters. When Luther realized this, these are his words, thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. He discovered the distinction, namely that the law is one thing and the gospel is another, and he broke through. Have we broken through? After this realization, he referred to the text he was wrestling with as his gateway to heaven. Because <laughs> here is somebody who is wrestling with wrong order without realizing it, and it was leaving him feeling anxious and inadequate. And when he realized and the order was corrected within him, deep within him, there was freedom. There was freedom. He was a slave, and he didn't realize it. There is an example closer to home. Because we're here in Galatians. I'm going to put on the stand Peter. Okay? Peter's an apostle. He walked with Jesus. He saw the miracles. He did the miracles. He witnessed the death and resurrection what an incredible guy. I don't know that I can imagine that at all. But there's more if you're familiar with Peter's story. In Acts 10 and 11, okay, Peter's up on the roof and he's praying and he's hungry. Somebody's making him food. God bless him. And he's up there praying and waiting for the food. God reveals himself to him and shows him a whole bunch of animals. Here you go. Animals, take, eat. Peter says, whoa, God, I'm clean. I'm clean. I can't eat those things. That'd make me unclean. You got to get your story straight, God. Pretty bold move on Peter's part. And God says, don't call unclean what I've made clean. If that wasn't enough, three door guys show up and are like, hey, Peter, we're here for you. And you got to come see this general guy. He's a great believer. He's also a Gentile. And Peter's like, God's sending me. Okay, so Peter goes. He brings some friends. They go to this gentleman's house. Holy Spirit comes down in power. And the people with Peter are just like mind blown. What is going on? These Gentiles are expressing the spirit like us Jews. This is not how we imagined it going on. This so blew their minds that when Peter gets back to Jerusalem, he gets reprimanded. And they're like, don't go eating with Gentiles, Peter. That's the wrong thing to do. Peter then tells them the story. And they praise God because this is a different narrative than they had written in their minds. Here we are. This is after, okay? Galatians 2, we're after this event. Peter's already had this incredible encounter with God, convicting him not to behave exactly how he's behaving in Galatians 2. 
crazy. But he behaves that way anyway. Why does Peter behave that way? This man who's walked on water, why is he behaving that way? Because for some reason, inside Peter, he felt that his value could be added to by these people coming in, the circumcision group. He was like, I need their approval. And so I will withdraw. I'll withdraw so that I'm not creating, you know, that could be a line. It could also be that he was like, this seems like too much trouble. I'm just going to take the Jews and go over here. There are many ways Paul could have called out Peter in this instance. Many ways. But it's significant that he calls him out with the gospel. And it's significant that he uses unifying language in the chapters to follow. He doesn't say, you, 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 you rotten person. He goes, we know better. We know the truth of the gospel and what it means. Paul remind, reminder to, Paul's reminder to Peter is if you stand in line, we see that wording, right? I think it's in 14. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. So Paul says to Peter, if you stand in line with the truth of the gospel, the hunt for value is over. You with me? No matter where you come from, no matter what your background is, no matter what how you came to know the precious love and gift of salvation in Jesus, the hunt for value is over. And when we walk in the value of being filled by Christ, we are able to walk in the spirit and the outcome is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And that brings us down to the end of the text here. And there's this remarkable statement, I have been crucified with Christ. What does that mean? And how does this relate to value? Let's see. When you accept Jesus into your life, when you acknowledge the gift of the salvation that Jesus brought through the cross, that very moment that you believe, you're unified with Christ in death and resurrection. What's that mean? Well, you died on the cross, or you could say the penalty for sin has been paid in full, and you are raised then with Christ. And so God honors you as if you had done what Christ did. Wild, wild, okay? What I'm saying is, your sins are put on Jesus, and his righteousness is put on you. Your sins are put on Jesus, and his righteousness is put on you. I'd like to invite up the worship team. This righteousness that's given to us is a value greater than anything we can obtain. And it's complete. 
We can't add to it. You understand what I'm saying? We can't add to it. Now, Paul addresses the fact that this doesn't, isn't an entitlement to go and sin. I've received Jesus. If you've really appreciated the value that you've obtained in the righteousness of Christ, then it's your heart's desire to obey all he commands. Why? Because he opened the door so that you can receive all that he has given. So I ask you again, as we go into some time of worship, we're going to provide a space during worship to share testimonies, praise, encouragement. What is your value? And remember, I said, we're not looking for the right answer, right? We see in the text the right answer. Our value is complete in Christ Jesus. It doesn't mean we don't wrestle and walk and figure things out through life. But how can you receive today the order of salvation? How can you receive that today? And how can it transform your life so that you can leave, live in the freedom of complete value? Let's pray. Lord God, as we enter into worship, I pray that you would just be opening hearts you'd be opening minds. This is a hard concept for us to grasp. It is hard to understand and fully appreciate the full value of our salvation in Christ Jesus. And so God, let us not get weary of pursuing to hold fast to the understanding of the value received. God, you did the work. Open our eyes to the work done so that we can be filled to overflowing with joy and love and Christ-likeness. In Jesus' name, amen.